your host, Lindsay Schultz, founder of Feed Your Can, a lifestyle brand that empowers people with food allergies to live fully. You'll learn life hacks and mind snacks so you can thrive each day. You may need to restrict foods, but never at the fun. Our kids navigate eight categories of food allergies altogether. We're learning every day. We refuse to let fear hold us back from living life. We welcome you to feed your can, even when some foods you just can't. I'm very excited for you to meet Michelle and hear a bit about her journey with learning how to advocate for her family's needs. Michelle is a busy mom to a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old child who is deaf, and 3-year-old twins, one of whom has several severe food allergies. In between advocating for her children, she works in advocacy as the program manager at the Center for Disability Health and Wellness for a major health system. She also spends her time volunteering for Michigan Hands and Voices as an educational advocate for the deaf and hard of hearing population. Her professional background is in education, and she has a master's in special education. She and her husband live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I learned a lot from my conversation with Michelle, and I hope you will too. Let's go. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. Well, thank you for joining. This is a really important topic for diving into on learning how to be an advocate, and you are the perfect person to just have this conversation. And I just wanted to give the listeners a little bit of background too. Michelle and I met through your husband, and we used to work together. From afar, I would watch you and just be in awe of how you stepped into some difficult situations and came out the other side and then joined up on this food allergy journey and not a club you necessarily wanted to be a part of. But could you just back up and maybe start with telling us a little bit about your family and the food allergy journey you are on right now? So I am a busy mom. I have four kids, which always blows people's minds. I think that they just think of like three is fine, but four is a lot. Um, And a lot of times I feel the same, but I have a 10-year-old girl and a seven-year-old boy who was born deaf. And I have three and a half-year-old boy-girl twins. And my son is the child with food allergies. So he has some pretty severe food allergies. Right now, he is allergic to milk, eggs, peanuts, and tree nuts. He's anaphylactic to all of those. We've known about this since he was around nine months old. We were just starting to get into the solid stage. And I'm a really, I think, nervous mom by heart. Typically, that's a very common thing for me. So I was really concerned about feeding him too much all at once. So we started off really slow. And of course, like what's one of the safest foods that you can feed your nine-month-old child? scrambled Mm. eggs with cheese or something. Ah. Right. So we did that, um, at home and his face just blew up and it was frightening. Um, we ended up in the ER and that is where we started with it. We had been sent to see an allergist. They just did a big smattering of tests for him and, We've had some new ones along the way. So things he didn't necessarily test positive for at nine months, um, he was testing positive for at 18 months. So it's been a short time period, but a long journey, I think is, is a great way to explain where we are right now. 
Thank you for sharing that. And I understand too, just with your youngest son coming into food allergies was a new disability, but your older son being deaf was a first focus on understanding really how to make those accommodations. So before food allergies were on your radar, did you even think about food allergies as a disability? What was your experience prior to that scrambled egg reaction? You know, there's a little bit of internal guilt still about this topic because it's such a severe situation for us that before we even were in the food allergy community, I kind of didn't think that food allergies were that big of a deal. I knew that they were a problem for some families. And I knew that, you know, elementaries had a separate allergy table for kids. But I recall a time when I had been on an airplane The flight attendant had come on the intercom and just asked that everybody put away their peanut products and that they wouldn't be offering peanuts on the flight. And I kind of rolled my eyes like, oh, here we go. Somebody just, you know, is being really needy, I guess. But there was a part of me in that part of my lifetime that didn't understand that there were such things as the airborne allergies, you know, that somebody just having that circulating in the air or the oils being close to them can really be a dangerous situation. That hadn't been explained to me until my child was that person. And that's kind of where we are with his peanut allergy. It's it's the same thing right now. We have to be very careful with the surfaces he touches. It's not just an ingested allergy for him or reaction. Knowing that now, I feel so bad about the way I behave as an adult, not having that information, not knowing that, that it was probably a matter of life and death for this person. And I was rolling my eyes at it. So I think knowing what I know now, I do consider it to be a disability type situation. I can relate it back to my child with hearing loss. And, you know, a lot of people don't tend to think of hearing loss as being a big deal. But it is a very big deal. Just like in my previous lifetime, I didn't believe that food allergies were as big of a deal as they actually are. So I'm thankful for that knowledge and that growth that I've had as an individual so that I can take it and help educate others. Do you think that having the anaphylactic reaction was the only thing that opened your eyes up to the severity? Or would you have thought differently if you had only learned X? Can you help us understand if there's something that we might be missing in the general mass awareness of food allergies? I think as a mother, that anaphylactic reaction was frightening. Seeing my own child go through that, wanting to make sure that I protect him, he will be my first and foremost focus as far as, you know, foods and things. So that was a big eye opener, but I am an educator by trade. I am one of those lifelong learners. And I think even in some of the EpiPen trainings I had had, as a teacher. I think if they had just explained at that point, even in my career and my lifetime, why epinephrine is needed. I don't think that I ever really was taught that. I think it's, if it's on the allergy sheet, then you do it. Not this is why it's needed. This is why time is of the essence for epinephrine. This is why you need to call 911. Those things were not given as part of a training for me then. Aside from being an educator, just in the public in general, I feel like if more people understood that it's not somebody just not wanting to smell the peanuts on the airplane, but if we have better understandings of what these needs are through education, people need to have that education. Most people, and I believe most people are 
willing to listen to those types of things and willing to learn to better the lives of their friends and their friends' children and their children's friends. I think it's just a matter of giving that tool to them to take. I think what I'm hearing too, I couldn't agree more. People are good at their core. People are also very busy and distracted because there's a lot of causes to care about and a lot of distractions, worries, to-dos on their plate already. From an educator stance, when you were trained, it sounds like you were taught the what and the how. What happens? How do you respond? But you weren't really taught the why. Mm -hmm. And that connection seems to be missing. As I'm listening to you, I do agree with you. Until you can relate it and bring it in a personalized way and really build that bridge of empathy, Mm -hmm. it doesn't connect. And I think that's a really great point you made. One other area I wanted to touch on was oral food challenges. And you've also experienced in this short time of having the diagnosis for your son, some oral food challenges and some scary reactions. So can you just talk a little bit about those experiences and what you've learned? feel like we've been fortunate in some ways to be able to participate in oral food challenges. I think sometimes that is like this little piece of hope for some of us food allergy parents where they're like, okay, we can try this. The blood tests show, or, you know, the scratch test is showing that your, your child may be ready. It feels like that's a positive thing. Just to reiterate his allergies, he's allergic to milk, eggs, peanuts, and tree nuts. We've been avoiding those at all costs. We don't do restaurants. We don't let him eat food that hasn't been prepared within the home. It's very scary otherwise. And so when we have to go to these food challenges, we've done cashews and we've done baked milk. The baked milk one was fine. He did great. He passed that one with flying colors, but preparing this food knowing that you've put a dangerous food item into it and you take it to the office and you watch them cut it up because it was a muffin. So we watched them cut up this muffin and I physically had to give him this dangerous food to eat. That was terrifying at best. I was almost sick to my stomach. I was so anxious because this entire time we had been told he is anaphylactic to milk. Do not give it to him. Do not have it within his presence that he can take it, drink it, take a bite of it, find something on the floor. Do not have it in your house. Here I am. Now I am the person feeding it to him and doing the things that they have said not to do. I am a rule follower. Because I understand that there are repercussions when you don't follow rules. This has been so hard for me, these oral food challenges. He passed baked milk. It was great. And they said, go home and feed this to him at least three days a week. And here's what you need to avoid still. And here are the ingredients list that you need to follow. And milk can't be in the top three ingredients on a processed food, but has to be baked in on a food that you make at home. And I feel like that was more nerve wracking than avoid it at all costs. (laughs) Because now if he didn't have it in his system every couple of days, then that allergy could return and could still be as severe as it was before. So that was frightening. And then we were told that he was ready to try cashews. And again, tree nuts and peanuts were very strong allergens for him. And cashews still felt very scary. We went in, I gave them the package of cashews that they asked me to purchase. And they gave him a little bit of cashew over a four-hour period. And he was fine. 
just to clarify for people yeah. who aren't as familiar with oral food challenges, there are these micro doses and then they wait 30 minutes at a time. Is that correct? They wait 20 minutes. I don't know if that is different for the severity of the allergy or if it's specific to each clinic, but the particular clinic that we go to, yes. So they had two whole cashews and they caught it up and they weighed it. They measured it each time before they fed it to him. They crushed it and they put it into applesauce so that he could eat it because at that point he was too young to safely eat a nut without choking. They had mixed it into some applesauce. Over those four hours, he had ingested the entire two cashews. At the four hour and 30 minute mark, they had come in to discharge us, send us on our way, give us our happy news. And I had said, I don't think he looks right. His eyes are watering. He just started sneezing a lot. He looks like he's got this rash on his neck. He's tugging at his ears. They said, no, I think he has a cold. Maybe you brought him in with a cold. This is fine. But in my heart of hearts, I knew that something wasn't right. And so I said, well, we're not going home. We're not going anywhere. Why don't you check on us again in 20 minutes? I felt safe doing that, being in the clinic. If there was an emergency, I could get them back in. If I'm driving home in 20 minutes and there's an emergency, I might not be able to help him in that time frame that he would need. Anyway, they came back in and checked on him. And sure enough, they decided that he did not pass the food challenge. He had started developing hives down his neck. His eyes were swelling shut. He was wheezing. We did not need epinephrine. They were comfortable with giving him Benadryl just because of the history of his reactions. They did not feel it was necessary for epinephrine, but they did ask if I wanted them to give it. I said, no, if they were comfortable using Benadryl and watching, then we did that. It did subside. We were fine by the time we got home. He had no symptoms of a cold. We were considered to be a food challenge fail. It has been one year, almost to the day that we had that challenge. And he recently had skin testing again and is extremely allergic to cashews. Okay. You will not be doing that oral challenge anytime soon. No, no. It sounds to me like there's also some confusion, even in the medical side, on when to use an epi auto injector Mm -hmm. versus Zyrtec or Benadryl. This is a controversy that I honestly feel our field needs to get on the same page because the auto injector is the only thing that can truly reverse Mm -hmm. anaphylaxis. And even though you catch something early and you want to give it just an antihistamine that might not be in your favor on the timeline of a true reaction that just goes crazy. It's an area that I know I would love to just see a little bit more consensus in our house. We just say epi first and fast now only because we've gotten over the fear of the needle and our kids have started to see it more as a pen and a tool in our purse or our bag. We default there. And we said, well, if we're wrong, then you get an adrenaline rush. But I know that Our first couple of times having anaphylactic reactions in our household, we absolutely were not comfortable going to that first. And I think because nurses and doctors don't always resort there often, they're Mm -hmm. hesitant too. So Mm -hmm. that's just a little rant, but it's interesting because your experience has mirrored mine. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also hard because he's so young, not saying that that was right or wrong either, but I think that frightens people. 
the fact that he's so small. I mean, he was two, just a little over two at that time. And I think injecting a, a young child for some reason makes the clinical staff feel much more uncomfortable because they can't explain it to them in words that they'll understand. At least they don't believe so. I'm a firm believer that you can explain anything to a child. It just takes multiple times of doing it for them to understand it, but you can do it and it's not impossible. And I think if they had to use the EpiPen on a two-year-old, they could say, we're going to give you this shot. It's going to hurt for a minute. Mom can hug you. You might feel silly. You might feel weird after. And they might not remember that. He might not remember that explanation after the fact, because again, it's a very traumatic situation when they don't quite understand. But by the time it's their fifth epinephrine need, they'll understand and they won't be as afraid of it. It won't make them worried to have to have it. It won't make them concerned when they see one in mom's purse. They'll see that, like you said, as a tool, but with those explanations along the way, every time you use it, they start to understand. And I think that is the key. Also, not being afraid to explain things to the child, whether they'll understand it or not. That is one area that I really got excited to bring you on to this podcast and talk more about is your gift for advocacy, not only in helping to teach yourself skills on how to speak up and be the voice for others who don't have a voice or maybe aren't old enough to talk about what they need, but you do this in your profession. And this is an area that you really thrive. So can you talk to us about how you have helped your children find their voice to ensure that their needs are met despite the challenges that they face or how the world might interact with them? Yeah. So I learned the skill through a lot of practice, a lot of positive moments, a lot of failing moments, but regardless, they're all learning experiences along the way. And I started doing this when my child, who was seven, was born with a hearing loss. There was a period of time in which I was grieving really hard about this disability because I didn't understand it. It was new for me. My child wasn't perfect. I knew as a special educator that there would be differences and there would be emotions and feelings and bullying and other issues that would come up. And I was very sad about it. I think after about a year, I really started to find my own voice because I realized that through his speech services or his medical appointments, I wasn't really feeling like I was being heard as the parent. And I've always firmly believed that the parent is the expert and the professionals are the side watchers and the assistants. I think just the creative group of people to help you get what you need, but you are the one to tell what your child needs. They can't say what your child needs. We had been at some medical appointments, just a little bit of background. My child has bilateral cochlear implants. So they give him access to sound. Everything sounds different to him. So we also use American Sign Language as a support for him to better understand the words that we're saying. So we sign and talk at the same time. And we were told by many professionals that we could not teach him how to sign because he wouldn't be able to learn how to use his cochlear implants to listen. He will just use his eyes to watch a sign versus teaching his brain how to hear through these devices. And it just didn't sit right with me because again, 
they spent one hour a week with him, whereas I am with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I know what he needs. And so at that point, I just decided that these professionals were well-meaning and are very educated people. And I really appreciated what they were trying to do for our family. But ultimately the choice was ours because what works for my child is what makes the choice right. They can have input if they want, but I don't need to accept anything that they have to tell me because it's what needs to work for my family. How did you learn to let your intuition overrule the medical professional? I don't know. I really don't know. I think it was that moment of somebody telling me that we couldn't do something that would assist our child. And that didn't sit well with me. I wasn't asking for them to allow us to feed him from a silver spoon. I wasn't asking for some outlandish thing that made no sense for his disability. I was literally asking for their resources on how to learn sign language to help my deaf child. I didn't have a lot of background in the deaf community and deaf culture and technology choices. I had no idea about those things at that time. My basic knowledge of deafness and hearing loss was deaf equals can't hear, therefore sign language is used. That was my basic understanding seven years ago. And that why wouldn't we want to do that? Why wouldn't we want to give my child access to language? And they're telling me that I couldn't. So it's not necessarily that I trusted my gut. I just, for some reason, in that moment, found my mama bear. And I don't even love that term either. Um, It sounds very harsh. I've never gone into anything expecting a fight or looking for a fight in any of these situations, but I really was just looking for a way to provide my child with the best life he could have. And I needed to make sure that I used my voice to do that. It was shaky. I was nervous. There were tears, but I did it. And the next time it was shaky. I was nervous. There were tears, but I did it. And still a hundred times later, I'm not as shaky. I'm not as nervous. I never have tears anymore. And I get it done. Just comes with practice. It's knowing that you know. It's trusting that you know what your child needs. Because nobody else is the expert of your child except for you. That's beautiful. It also reminds me that other people should not and cannot put limitations on our kids. Mm -hmm. Because they do not know. When... Our daughter, Emma, was in the NICU and she had a collapsed lung. We were told by a medical resident, well, her lungs will heal well enough that she can run around, but don't expect her to be a star soccer player. And that triggered me. And it sounds like any implied or overt limitations that are verbalized bring out this advocacy within Mm -hmm. us as parents. And I think that that's, for me what really just fueled the fire within and not in an aggressive way to your point, but in a way that makes you want to remove the barriers, make room for possibility, get creative and scrappy with whatever problem solving skills and alternative solutions to get it done. That is what I'm hearing from you. And I have said for the last few years, it's no longer about me. It's no longer about Miles, who has hearing loss, or Oliver, who has food allergies. It's not about us anymore. It's about the families that will come after us. If I can just use my strong presence 
to provide an easier experience for the next family, then I've done my job. Because I also know that not everybody is as comfortable with advocacy as I am. And so while they want the best for their child and they are the expert of their child, they may not have the skills to be able to speak to them. And if I can do a good job by doing that for my kids now, my hope is that the family behind us doesn't have to do any of that and that it will already be understood and already be done for them. Tell me about some specific examples where you've modeled advocacy for your kids and you've invited them into the process to gradually bring them along and teach them to self-advocate. It started with my seven-year-old. It's where I got a lot of my parental experience in the world of advocacy from. Through his disability, he is automatically eligible for special education. And so we had to start an IEP, which is an individualized education plan. Essentially what it is, is it provides him with additional services like speech therapy, physical therapy, sometimes social work, work with a special educator, and overall provides him with a more successful educational outcome, giving him the little extras that he might need. From the very beginning, I would have him come into this IEP meeting. For those listeners that don't really understand what these meetings are, it's the parent And it's every individual who may be assisting your child with their education. So again, those professionals that I had listed before, all of those people may be there. Sometimes it can be a little overwhelming for the family. During this IEP, it's for a child with a disability. You talk a lot about the things your kid can't do, areas in which they are lacking, In the very beginning, it was, you know, Miles is not hearing at the level of a typical three-year-old. His speech is only developing at the rate of a typical 18-month-old, but he's three years old. And so he has a language delay. All of those things that they're reminding you of, these deficits that your child is displaying can be really hard. I had decided in the very beginning that I would bring Miles in. And he would sit in the first part of it. And I wanted them to start off by telling us all the good things he's doing and explain to him that we are in a meeting and we are a team and we're working together to make sure that we are creating the best experience possible. And we use those words every time because just because he's three doesn't mean he need to change the language. It just needs to be repeated more often so that he understands it more. He is seven now. He has been in his IEP meetings. He almost runs the meetings himself. He comes in and he says, okay, now I know this part. You're going to tell me all the good things I do. And now I have him stay for each professional to tell him one thing he needs to work on. And then we excuse him because he doesn't need to hear a whole list of deficits. But knowing that he has areas of improvement is a really good part of his education also and his own self-advocacy. So with Oliver and the food allergies, he recently joined daycare just a few months ago. And we had met with the team um, to talk through his food allergies ahead of time. I had him there. He was able to list off two of his allergens at the time. I said, okay, Oliver, what are you allergic to? And he said, milk and eggs. (laughs) And of course I added peanuts and tree nuts. But just to have him there in that meeting and to hand the trainer EpiPen to the staff so they could practice it. That was his job to hand it to him. It was his job to show them what medicine he uses, 
It's his job to show them where his EpiPen needs to go in his body. We've talked through these things and he's only three. But again, this is so important because I want him to be able to advocate for himself when I can't be there. And pretty soon I won't be able to be there. He'll be in kindergarten. I can't just be by his side all day. I would love to, but that's not the way the world works. And I need him to be able to use his voice to let them know how to keep himself safe. One theme I talk about a lot is how our instincts as parents are to protect our kids. And sometimes that means speaking for them. But what we're doing is we think protecting them and we're actually doing more harm when we're speaking for them. You caught on to this a lot earlier than most, including myself. I really didn't have Cameron, our oldest, memorize all of his food allergens. He's got seven of them to rattle off until recently. It'll be 10. That feels like a fail. But instead, I would do all the proactive communication to his teachers, coaches, principal, neighbors, friends, playdates in advance for him. I just realized what a disservice that was. And I just love how you're modeling that from the beginning, letting Oliver guide and you're just filling in the gaps. And I think that that's a huge takeaway for all of us to remember that we are scared as parents. We are using our fear, right? Fight or flight. And it's a little bit of the fight of, okay, we're going to just protect the whole situation and tell everyone what they need to know. And it's a to-do list. That is a very short-sighted view when you're trying to create an independence and autonomy and really self-reliance that ready or not, it will come. Yeah. And I don't want the listeners to think by any means that I don't do those things. You know, I went through that food menu probably seven times that the daycare provided to make sure there wasn't anything there that was not safe for him. And I called them every day for a good week to make sure he was doing okay, because it's terrifying to send your kid into a facility where they will be in charge of feeding him several meals, snacks, et cetera, and hope that they get it right. Thankfully, I really trust this facility with all my heart and soul. They took care of my deaf child and made sure he had access to things and was understood and took him on field trips. And I didn't have to worry about him not coming back or getting on a wrong bus. But I do, I I am still that allergy mom that is terrified of certain situations. But I think it also helped me to help him advocate for himself by being comfortable with the community and the experience I was sending him into. I think if it had been a daycare I was unfamiliar with, I might not have taught him very quickly how to talk for himself because I want to make sure they get all the information and understand it clearly. But to your point, you know, I want to back up to what you said about doing your child a disservice. I don't think you need to think like that at all. You protecting him and keeping him safe was the best thing you could have done for him. And we all do it a little bit differently. While you didn't give him the tools to be able to do that on his own, he's watched you do it. And I think that is a huge part of teaching him self-advocacy. Well, my mom has said this, and I've seen my mom do this, and I've seen her talk to this person, and this is what she says. I think as parents, we often forget our kids are watching us all the time, and they're listening to what we say. So while he couldn't rattle off his allergens, I still think that what you did for him will help him beyond what you'll ever understand. Just knowing that you cared for him, loved him, and kept him safe by talking to those uh, adults and individuals around him. Thank you for saying that. 
as I reflect on what I just said, you're absolutely right. And he will get better and we will all get better because there's no choice. I always say too, with food allergies, the failure is forward. We don't get to just opt out and say, it's too scary. I'm just going to bury that fear and never face it again. No, your next meal is going to be waiting for you. You have to fail forward because you need to keep eating. That's the interesting dynamic with food allergies. It's always a forward facing condition. When we fail, we get up and we try again. We're going to screw up. We're going to say the wrong things. We're going to look silly sometimes. We're going to be misinformed. We're going to have regrets, but we just dust ourselves off and we keep going because we need to keep eating. (laughs) Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to share with someone who might be listening to just help them build their own confidence, especially? For those people who are less comfortable speaking up, maybe they're on the shyer side or they're just not the personality type to raise their hand. I've been thinking about this in myself too. About 10 years ago, even as somebody who went to school and my background is education and getting in front of people and talking you know, on a daily basis was a normal thing. I used to be so nervous every day, even to just read a story out loud to my class. It was very terrifying. I was always afraid of rejection, even from kids, right? Kids will tell you all day, all the things you did wrong. (laughs) And nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that you said something wrong or you've done something wrong or that you've offended them. I think as I've gotten older and I have these children to protect that I just have stopped caring about how other people will perceive the information I have to give. But I also live by this rule that I don't have to make friends going into a meeting. But if I do, that's great. But if I don't, I have my own friends at home. I can go in and be professional. I will always do that. I will always go in and present the information. I don't need to use professional language. I don't need to use big words. But I do need to have passion behind what it is I'm sharing. And I think as parents... We do that every day. Every day we talk about when our child uses the potty for the first time, right? That is like people who aren't parents are just like, I don't know why you're talking about that. (laughs) But as parents, we're like, this was huge. This is huge for us as parents and them as an individual. And like, look at their independence now. And when we talk about those things, we have so much passion and we're so excited And I think as long as you present your information to whoever it is, grandma and grandpa, a group of teachers, medical professionals, other clinical staff, if you present your information to them with that same kind of passion, it's really hard for people to not listen. It's really hard for them to not feel engaged. And it's really hard for them to not see you as a professional parent. Right. But if you go into a meeting or an interaction with a group of people and you start saying, My kid needs this, my kid needs that, they will not listen to you because you wouldn't listen to that. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I think it's the same way. I don't know if that's helpful to those out there that might feel shy, but I think if you come into it with the passion and the love that you already have for your child and think about why it is you're advocating for them. What is it you want to see? What is the outcome from this momentary nervousness, this momentary heightened anxiety? What is that outcome that you want to see come from that? That can really drive your emotions in those situations as well. Well said. I love that. 
you talked about passions just now, and I know you have passions of your own. Where do those passions intersect with the food allergy community and the journey you're on? Advocacy is a big passion of mine. It has been for many years in my personal life, obviously, but now in my professional life, I'm really passionate about being the voice that others can't have. Through our food allergy journey, I am finding it important for me to use my skills and my talent for advocating for others to educate about food allergies. I'm constantly sharing on social media. While it's just a small group of people, you can never teach too few. If you teach one thing to one person and they go and teach that one thing to one more person, you've taught two people. I try to do that on a daily basis, whether we run into something in the grocery store or we run into something at a food event or you know a holiday or birthday or whatever, and my child can't have this or nobody thought to ask that, I will put that on social media. I will share a video. I will do a talk. I think trying to share these things to people so they stop rolling their eyes on the airplane like I did. If I had seen these things on social media 15 years ago, I would have a completely different outlook. I would have had a different outlook. And so if I can keep one person, just one, from rolling their eyes on the airplane, I've done a good job. Because if they teach one other person, and then they teach one other person, lots of people have heard the message and hopefully will start to understand a little bit better that this is not an eye-rolling situation that it's a safety situation for us to keep these people who are affected by food allergies safe and loved. I guess it's like a form of love for people in general as well. That's great. Well, your messages, I hope, will teach more than just one person today. We hope that it's amplified. Whoever's listening to this shares this episode with other people who could learn how to be an advocate, how to teach your kids how to advocate and just instill these skills and tools so that we can all be better and more informed. Because a lot of times with food allergy being an invisible disability, we do need to constantly bring it back to the surface in situations that are social events that include food. I can't really find too many social events that don't include food. If you think that you're always the person who's speaking up about food allergies and you feel like you're the squeaky wheel and other people will get annoyed with you, you're wrong because food allergies are an invisible disability. The more that we can bring them up and give people the opportunity to think a little bit more considerately about those who might be exposed and in an unsafe environment, the more empathy we're building and compassion as humanity all around. There's really not a downside there. I just want to thank you, Michelle, for joining today and sharing your experiences, your life path. So much of this journey is ongoing, and I'm just grateful to be connected to you because we learn from each other. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And if I could just say one more thing to whoever might be listening, your child is never too young to learn advocacy skills. If your child is 12 months old, you have found out that you have a new food allergy and you're part of this journey, they are not too young to hear, you're allergic to milk. I think the younger that we start them with the knowledge of what their body can and cannot handle is huge. Do it, mama. Do it, dad. Just talk about it. Keep talking to your kids about what their limitations are. 
but also remind them that a limitation does not mean that they are limited in other areas of life. They just need to know how to keep themselves safe, too. Michelle's experiences with advocacy extend far and wide. Here are the top tips for how to develop these communication skills for yourself while also helping your growing advocate find their voice, too. Tip number one, don't assume others know what your child needs to stay safe. Food allergies are an invisible disability that need awareness and education. Tip number two, you know your child best. Listen to those instincts. Speak up when something just doesn't feel right. Number three, studying symptoms of anaphylaxis ahead of time, along with reviewing your allergy action plan periodically, helps make calmer situations in times of need. It also helps you educate not just on how to use epinephrine, but also why it works to reverse the life-threatening symptoms. Tip number four, don't let the limitations of others' words shrink your own will. Instead, let it fuel a fire within you to bring out your voice and educate whenever there's a misalignment. Number five, advocacy is not just about you. It's not just about your loved one's journey either. It's also for those who come after us. Our words can help improve the safety for others' lives with that ripple of education. Remember, this is bigger than all of us. Number six, it's never too early. It's never too late to teach advocacy. You can begin speaking to your child about their food allergies when they're a baby and model this behavior gradually until it's their turn to try speaking up after they've seen you do it enough times. It is a gradual shift, but the more you involve the person from the beginning, the better off they're going to be in the long run. But don't worry if your child is older. You can also have this conversation, model the behavior, be next to them as they try communication, and you can help fill in the blanks. Number seven, advocacy doesn't have to occur behind the scenes. Protecting your child doesn't mean protecting them from hearing and watching you while talking about their food allergies to adults. They will learn by watching you. Number eight, advocacy comes in all shapes and sizes of personalities. You don't need to be one type of personality to advocate. It's about learning the skills gradually by leading with strong communication, an open collaboration style, presenting the facts, and keeping the relationship professional. All of these skills make for a great advocate. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review. You can also visit feedyourcan.com to grab a freebie, or subscribe to our newsletter. Remember, feed your can, because some foods you just can't.